Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Fair Territory. And guess what? We are getting close. Dodgers pitchers and catchers report on Friday. Padres pitchers and catchers report on Sunday. Why the early report dates for those teams? Because they'll be playing in Korea in mid-March. But I want to start off this show talking about the biggest events of last week. And they both involved the same team, the Baltimore Orioles. What a monumental week for the Orioles it was. A week that probably their fans will remember for quite some time. It started, of course, with the news that the Angelos family will be selling a controlling stake of the club to a group led by a private equity investor named David Rubenstein. The guy is a native of Baltimore. He's someone who has done a lot in his career. He's been involved in philanthropy. Obviously, someone with deep pockets. Forbes valued him at $3.7 billion. That was pretty good news for the Orioles fans, of course, but as I wrote in The Athletic, it took me back to 1993, back when I was at the Baltimore Sun, and the auction that took place when the Orioles were sold the last time to Peter Angelos. This was a bankruptcy auction. It took place in a sweltering New York City courtroom. It was quite an electric moment. It was Angelos with Bill DeWitt, owner of the Cardinals, against Jeffrey Loria, who, of course, would later go on to own the Marlins. Angelos won with a bid of $173 million. It was, at the time, a record for a sports franchise. Think about that. And now, all of these years later, we have a very similar scenario. Local guy, deep pockets, the seeming savior of the franchise. Obviously, Angelo's had his good points and a lot of bad points as well. So you never know what you're quite getting with an owner. But my goodness, could it be any worse than it has been the last few years under Peter Angelos' son, John Angelos? Peter, of course, has been incapacitated since 2018, so John has been running the club. And John, well, it's not just the low payrolls that have gotten everyone. It's conduct unbecoming of a steward of a franchise. What am I talking about? Oh, let's see. The suspension of Kevin Brown, the broadcaster, who is immensely popular and gifted. The confrontation with then with the Athletics' Dan Connolly. The lecture he gave him when Dan asked a question about, oh, maybe one day selling the team. Good question, it turned out. And of course, the coup de grace of this whole thing, you saw the reaction, perhaps you didn't, from Maryland state officials when this news was announced last week, they felt that they were at best misled and at worst lied to during the lease negotiations for Camden Yards. They just signed a lease recently. So it can't get worse. And in fact, with the Rubenstein Group, it should get a lot better simply with the momentum the franchise has right now and the momentum taking place in the city of Baltimore right now. Now with the franchise, we all know what's going on there. Won 101 games last year. They just added Corbin Burns. We'll get to that in a second. They are in a great, great place. Team is on the rise. It's the perfect time for a new owner. They have a new lease, as I just mentioned. It's going to be for at least 15 years and most likely for 30 years. That lease includes $600 million in improvements to one of the game's great gems already, Camden Yards. And finally, you have... What seems to be happening in Baltimore, a place where I lived for a long time, a coming revival of downtown. There are plans to reimagine and redo Harbor Place. That, of course, is the centerpiece of downtown Baltimore. So a lot of good things are happening there 
And again, for the Rubenstein group coming in at this time, wow, you're taking something that is really good already and could get a lot better. Obviously, fans are going to be looking forward to this team spending more money. Can't spend any less. And that, too, will be a good thing. The other thing with the Orioles last week, and of course, this was the bigger on-field development, the trade for Corbin Burns seemed to come out of nowhere because there hadn't been a lot of talk about Corbin Burns in the last, I don't know, month to six weeks. But the Brewers ultimately decided to make the move finally. And actually, the Orioles gave up a lot considering what they were getting. It's not just the quality of Corbin Burns. We all know how good he is. 2021 Cy Young winner. It's more that he's under club control for only one year. And generally for players of that type, no matter how good they are, the price is depressed. But the Brewers acquired two guys who have been top 100 prospects and are major league ready. D.L. Hall was in the majors last year and was pretty darn good. Joey Ortiz made his debut as well. And these guys can step into the Brewers and really be significant players for them perhaps as early as this season. Most likely as early as this season. Brewers also received the 34th pick in the upcoming draft. So that was a good haul. But if you're the Orioles, you do this. You do this every day of the week. And you do it because your team, as we've talked about all offseason, was missing a top-of-the-rotation starter. Now, some Orioles fans were saying, well, we're good. We've got Bradish. We've got Grayson Rodriguez, John Meat. No, no. You're good, but now you're a lot better. Corbin Burns makes this rotation look deep. He makes it look just much different than it would without him. He's going to be someone that can give them a presence every fifth day that, frankly, Grayson Rodriguez is not ready to be just yet. And even Bradish. These guys are good. Two of the best pitchers in baseball in the second half, and maybe they'll become more Burns-like this season. But they're not Corbin Burns just yet. So for the Orioles, really good stuff all week. And we all look forward to seeing them play this year, and we all look forward to seeing what this new ownership is going to bring. If you missed the details, the Rubenstein Group takes 40% now, and then they have the option to get the final 60% later. This is, of course, all pending Major League approval, but that is expected. Also, over the weekend, kind of on the other coast, we had something that I thought was pretty striking. Dodger Fest. It used to be called Dodgers Fan Fest, but now it's called Dodger Fest. That took place at Dodger Stadium. It's the first time they ever sold tickets for this event, and they drew 35,000 people. 35,000 for a fan fest, essentially. Well, the excitement around this team rarely has been matched, if at all, in recent memory. I can't remember, and I'm sure it's kind of happened, a fan base so electrified by the team's offseason as we're seeing now with the Dodgers, and rightly so. Now, obviously, not all teams can afford to do what the Dodgers do, and obviously not all teams play in a place like Los Angeles, a place where players seem to want to be. But this excitement, this energy you saw at Dodger Stadium over the weekend, it shows the value of investing in your team and building frankly, an entertainment product that people want to see. And let's hear what some of the players were saying. Some of the biggest stars in the game were saying about what they saw at Dodger Stadium this weekend. I mean, look at the excitement around. I think that's all because Shohei's here and uh, all our other additions. But uh, for 55,000 people every single night to watch uh, probably a person that our 
grandkids are going to be talking about. Um, just like we talk about Babe Ruth, that's who Shohei is. Yeah, this is this is super cool. Uh, it just shows you uh, what, what it's like to be a Dodger, and I, I love it. And as far as the Dodger fans, um, I was always facing the Dodger fans, and I could feel their pressure, and it wasn't fun like having to play against their cheers. So now they're going to be they're going to have my back, so it's going to be a lot easier, and I'm excited. If you're listening on a podcast and not watching on YouTube, that was, if you don't recognize the voices, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, and of course, Shohei Otani talking about the excitement they felt this weekend. Now, with that excitement, with the money they've spent, their billion-dollar offseason that Fabian Ardia writes about in The Athletic on Monday, with all of that comes pressure that I cannot recall being matched in recent memory entering a season for a team. And Mookie Betts talked about that as well because this is going to be perhaps the number one storyline of the season. Are the Dodgers as good as we all think they should be? That's going to be something that they're going to have to live up to. And here's Mookie. I mean, we just go out and we uh, we play our play our game. I mean, obviously, we're trying to win a World Series. You know, it's World Series or nothing. You know, we're all trying to do the same thing. And so, but we can't add extra pressure to do it. You know, it, it, I think adding extra pressure only does more harm than good. I think we just got to play the same game we're going to play. You know, it's going to be tough. I mean, every every game is going to be the other team's World Series. I mean, it is what it is. It's what we signed up for. You know, and yeah. so we have to embrace that. And then we got to go attack and, and be who we on paper are. Mookie is absolutely right. They are going to be a target for every team they play. They're going to be a measuring stick, a team that people want to see, a team that people in other places want to beat. So it's going to be a crazy fun season for the Dodgers. One way or the other, they're going to be fascinating. And of course, everyone will be paying attention. Finally, the biggest news of the day, one of the biggest stories of the offseason, the Bobby Witt extension with the Kansas City Royals. It's 11 years with a club option of three years that could make the deal grow to 14 years, 377.7 million. There are opt-outs as well after years seven, eight, nine, and 10. This is a monster deal for a low revenue franchise. Kind of shows that other teams can do this too if they have the ownership commitment. And he comes at a very interesting time for the Royals for two reasons. One, this is a team that is trying to get a new stadium built with public financing. Signing Bobby Witt long-term is a clear commitment of the team to this particular player, who is their best player, one of the top young players in the game. And it shows a commitment going forward that the owner, John Sherman, is going to invest in the franchise. So with the vote coming up, obviously a great move for the Royals to do this now. It times out really well couple of other things, too. The Royals are a team with only one Hall of Famer, George Brett. And I've spoken with club officials in recent weeks about the idea that they might not have another Hall of Famer if they trade Bobby Witt. If he rejects an extension, they trade him. If all that had happened, then who are they looking at? Maybe Sal Perez, borderline candidate at best. But who knows if there'll be another one anytime soon for the Royals. So they felt that locking up Witt for that reason as well was really important. To understand just how important franchise billers can be, all they need to do is look across the street and see what Patrick Mahomes has done for the Kansas City Chiefs. Witt will now be the Royals version of Mahomes. And this is a team that is intent on getting better. They've spent some money this winter. We'll talk about that later in the show as well with Waka and Lugo and Will Smith. They are trying to be a more competitive team 
Great message that they send by signing Witt. Great commitment by him as well to the franchise and to the city. Just a win-win all around. I know these deals, of course, come with risk, but much less risky with position players of Bobby Witt's caliber than they are for starting pitchers or pitchers of any kind. So good news for Kansas City, good news for Bobby Witt, and good news for the Royals. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside something I've written, inside perhaps a trend in the game. Maybe I riff on something else entirely. But this week, I wanted to talk about a column I wrote after the Corbin Burns trade. A column about the Brewers, and you see the headline right there if you're watching, why the Brewers had to trade Corbin Burns. Now, I wanted to go a little bit deeper about this, wanted to explain my thinking, because judging from some of the comments to the column, or you see at the bottom, some people didn't quite follow what I was saying. This is a common affliction in reading comprehension America. And some people, well, they disagree, which is fine. And some people wanted to pick an entirely different fight. Here's the deal. Here's my thinking. So the Brewers non-tendered Brandon Woodruff earlier this offseason. They non-tendered him because they didn't want to pay him $11 million plus while he recovered basically all season from shoulder surgery. Perfectly understandable decision. But what it meant was that they were going to get nothing back for Brandon Woodruff, who was eligible, like Corbin Burns, for free agency at the end of the season. So nothing for Brandon Woodruff. And my concern with the Brewers was that if they did the same thing with Corbin Burns, they would get nothing back for him as well, except a draft pick if they made him a qualifying offer, which they almost certainly would do. Now, obviously, they could have taken Corbin Burns into the season. Could have taken another shot with this group, which also includes another big potential free agent, Willie Adamas. But there is risk in that. And the risk in that is if Corbin Burns gets hurt. Frankly, it's the same problem that the White Sox are facing with Dylan Cease. They can take him into the season and he'll have great value at the deadline. Cease will. But if he gets hurt, that value could be shot. It's a risk. It's not maybe a huge risk, but it's something that is there. Now, the other thing here is if the team is good, if the Brewers are competitive, as they've been for quite some time, you run the risk of another Josh Hader situation if you decide to trade Corbin Burns at the deadline then, and most likely you're not going to do that. You're not going to risk disrupting the team the way you did with that Hader trade. Now that trade, people don't realize this, a lot of people don't anyway, really turned out okay for the Brewers. didn't help that season at all. In fact, it disrupted it and might have crushed it. No doubt. But it ultimately landed the Brewers through another series of maneuvers, William Contreras and Joel Piams, two guys who are pretty critical or were pretty critical last year to what they did and will be pretty critical to what they do going forward. Now, you can argue that the Burns trade will wreck this season before it even starts. I don't agree. I talked about the players that they got back in the trade who will help them this season. And they've also added Reese Hoskins. They've got Jackson Churio making his debut. You don't know how it will go, but it's an exciting thing going on with the team. And they've got a lot of good players. Won the division by nine games last year. So I don't know that they're necessarily in a horrible place. Still have Freddie Peralta. Still have Wade Miley. You have some other prospects coming. You've got some young outfielders that are really exciting. A position club that is still decent at the very least. So... Within the framework we're dealing with, within the economic structure of this sport, what the Brewers did, in my opinion, 
Yes, it will set them back for 2024. I don't know that there's any question about that. You'd rather have Corbin Burns on your team than not. But it will also enable them to continue what they've done over the last, I don't know, six, seven years. And that's continue being a sustainable team, a contender year after year. They might not be the team that they were going to be with Burns this year, but I still expect them to contend in the NL Central. Now, you can say, as some of you did in response to this column and in response to other columns that I've written this offseason, Ken, we need a salary cap. It's time. Certainly, this is a fair discussion. Baseball is the only major professional sport without a salary cap in the United States anyway. And I can understand the discussion. That's a discussion for a separate time, perhaps. But it's not a realistic one for baseball at this particular time. One, CBA, I believe we're in year two of a five-year agreement. And number two, and more important, the baseball union historically has fought tooth and nail against a salary cap to the point where the league does not even propose it in CBA negotiations. They might propose some things that kind of look like a salary cap. The luxury tax is not a salary cap, but it's a way to drag or slow down salaries at the top of the scale. But they will not propose a pure salary cap. And I don't expect they will do that in the next set of negotiations either. And frankly, I don't know that this sport needs a salary cap. I believe there are other ways to fix the problem, the disparity between the big markets and small markets, without imposing a cap. Because you don't want to impose a cap or try to impose a cap because it's going to lead to a work stoppage. You can enhance revenue sharing. You can make more stringent requirements for teams that are receiving revenue sharing to spend money on Major League Payroll. You can maybe, certainly, increase the number of draft picks that small market teams get. There are all kinds of ways to perhaps restore or make better the competitive imbalance in the sport. Now, continuing this conversation, you can also say, in response to this column, hey, hey, hey. Mark Atanasio, the Brewers' owner, he should be spending more money. He should be signing Corbin Burns and not trading him. Now, I'm never opposed to the idea of an owner spending more money. Frankly, they all should, right? But on what planet does anyone seriously think that the Brewers, smallest media market in Major League Baseball, are going to give Corbin Burns the kind of contract that Scott Boris is going to seek for him as a free agent? probably going to be up around Garrett Cole territory, based on the way Burns has performed. He might not get what Cole gets, but he's going to want that, Scott Boris will, for Burns as a free agent. That's not happening. The Brewers are not signing Corbin Burns. I'm sorry. They're not doing it. So this idea, Atanasio should just spend money and keep Corbin Burns, sign him to an extension, which Scott Boris never does. No, that's not realistic either. So when I wrote this, I try to deal with the reality of the Brewers' situation and not what could be if the sport had a salary cap, if Mark Atanasio would spend more money. Those aren't realistic things within the context of what we're talking about. Now, you guys know this. I talk about it all the time. I never mind people disagreeing with me. I never mind civil discussion, civil debate. Hey, this is why we all love baseball. We all love talking about baseball. We all love arguing about baseball. Now, I know Brewers fans didn't like it last summer when I wrote that Craig Council might leave. He left. 
I know Brewers fans didn't like early in the offseason when I wrote precisely that this kind of trade might happen, and it did. Hey, I have no problem with the fans who were ticked off at that time because they didn't want to entertain those concepts, thought those things might not happen. Fair game. All fair game, always. But at the same time, if you're going to call me names, as some of you did, if you're going to call me a bootlicker for the owners, a shill, I would suggest that maybe you read me more frequently. And I would say that maybe you should remember why I'm appearing on fair territory and foul territory in the first place rather than on MLB Network. I don't think it was because I'm a shill for the owners, a bootlicker. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. Dude of the Week, it's pretty obvious this week who the Dude of the Week should be. It's the guy who pulled off the trade for Corbin Burns. That would be Orioles general manager Mike Elias. Now, I had questioned Elias. A lot of people had wondered if this team was ever going to make this kind of move. They certainly had the prospects to do it. They had duplicates all over the place, but they had not done it. And it's like anything else in sports or in life. Until you prove you can do something, no one should necessarily expect that you will do it. But Mike Elias pulled this off at a time when people were not expecting it. As I said last week on Foul Territory, the talks actually started in December. It seems to me, I don't know for sure, that the Orioles were ready to do it then, but the Brewers were not quite on board. They just could not wrap their arms around trading Burns. Then they added Reese Hoskins later. They had already signed Jackson Churio to the long-term deal, and maybe they felt more comfortable doing it at this particular time. I'm not sure how the timing worked. Maybe it took all offseason to convince owner Mark Atanasio to do this. Whatever. Mike Elias got it done. He made the move that shook up the AL East, that put his team in prime position to be not just a playoff team in 2024, but perhaps a World Series team as well. Mike Elias, Orioles GM, Dude of the Week. Now, Dork of the Week, usually this is a somewhat humorous category. We have a little fun with it. But this week with the Jackie Robinson statue getting stolen from a Wichita baseball league and then getting charred and left in pieces. There's nothing humorous to say about that. I long for a day when we're no longer talking about this kind of thing, when these kinds of things don't happen, when, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, people are judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And if you don't think this was a racist act, you've got another thing coming. So, dork of the week, the people who did this, I'm tired of this kind of crap, man. And I hope you are too. All right, time now for Grilling Ken. This is the part of the show where you guys ask me questions about stuff going on in the sport. So let's get right to it. Let's get to the first question. This one comes from Paul. Paul asks, does the Ross Stripling trade open a potential rotation spot for the Giants and do they utilize their farm to fill the void? Paul, this is an interesting question. And it speaks to a larger issue with the Giants right now. We've been talking about whether they will sign a hitter. Matt Chapman, perhaps. J.D. Martinez is another candidate, as Andrew Baggerly wrote in The Athletic. But actually, they need a starting pitcher perhaps more than anything else. And I want to show you why. Let's look at their rotation and go through it. Because right now, it's awfully inexperienced. Logan Webb at the top. Jordan Hicks converting from being a bullpen arm. 
Kyle Harrison, one of the game's better prospects, Keaton Wynn, and Tristan Beck. That's a rather inexperienced group. But that's your opening day group because you're waiting for Alex Cobb and Robbie Ray to come back from injuries, and that's not going to happen until the second half of the season. So even before trading Ross Stripling, the Giants needed a starting pitcher who could be ready to go opening day. They still need one, and I'm not quite sure how they're going to get one. Maybe it's one of the remaining free agents, Michael Lorenzen, Mike Clevenger. Maybe they trade for someone, but they need help in that rotation as much, if not more, than they need a Matt Chapman or a J.D. Martinez. Next question comes from JP67, who asks, what team do you think will surprise everyone and be much more competitive than expected? I talked about this team in the opening segment. This team is the Kansas City Royals. And that's true, or it was true, even before the Bobby Wood extension. The Bobby Wood extension doesn't really change anything. What was going to be there either way. But the signings of Michael Waka and Seth Lugo and Will Smith and Hunter Renfro, all the things that they've done this offseason, have pointed toward a more competitive team going forward. And that's a division, let's face it, that is kind of weak, right? Maybe the weakest in baseball. The Twins are starting to make some moves now, trying to get a little bit better, but they haven't done much this offseason. The Guardians are kind of spinning their wheels. The White Sox are still building. And the Tigers, too, they're starting to come, but they're in a building mode as well. So this is a time for Kansas City to maybe take a step forward. And we saw what Cole Reagans did after they acquired him for Roldis Chapman. They want Waka and Lugo to stabilize the rotation. A lot's going to have to happen for this team to be good. We all know that. But yes, if you're asking which team I believe might surprise, it's Kansas City. Final question from Garnet Shire. I don't know that that's his name, but here we go. I was wondering if in your career you have seen either a no-hitter or a perfect game. If you haven't, have you seen any that were close or decided to not go to the park and miss one? Love the podcast. And my first game was Dave Stewart's no-hitter. All right. Good question. Now, I've been a baseball writer since 1987, so this will be my 38th year coming up. And I have seen a few no-hitters. Not a perfect game, but I've seen a few no-hitters. And they've all been, of course, like all no-hitters are, rather memorable. The first no-hitter I witnessed was in the ninth game I ever covered for the late Baltimore Evening Sun. April of 1987, Juan Nieves at the Old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. The game ended. The no-hitter ended with Robin Yount making a diving catch in center field on a screaming line drive by Eddie Murray. Two Hall of Famers there. So that was the ninth game I ever covered. Needless to say, I was overmatched and didn't cover it particularly well. Now, I did miss one in 1991. That was also at Memorial Stadium. Wilson Alvarez for the Chicago White Sox against the Orioles. I remember watching the game, holding my baby son. He was, I think, three or four months old at the time. This is 1991. He's now 32. And yeah, I was off that day. It was a Sunday, and I missed that game. In Camden Yards, still with the Baltimore Sun, Hideo Nomo's no-hitter in the first game he ever pitched for the Red Sox. That was a game memorable because John Hirschbeck's strike zone ranged from roughly Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. It was quite wide. And... I love John, we're friends, but that was what really defined that no-hitter. And then the really two most memorable no-hitters I've covered are the two most recent. And one of them was one I'll never forget for a lot of reasons. 
Roy Howard, a game one of the 2010 Division Series. I cover that game for MLB Network as well as for FoxSports.com. And at the end of the no-hitter, I interviewed Halliday for the network. And this is a scene I will never forget. As the interview started, photographers just swarmed around us. They kind of formed a semicircle. We'll show you a photograph now of that moment. I'm not sure that the photograph completely captures the way that all developed, but it was a really cool night. Roy Halliday, a tragic figure in the game for what happened later, the way we lost him. But that was a hugely memorable night. And then my most recent no-hitter, Game 4 of the 2022 World Series, the combined no-hitter started by Christian Javier of the Astros, and that, of course, was a great night. And I remember interviewing Javier for Fox afterward and asking him about it, and he said, yeah, I was with my parents today, and they said, you're going to throw a no-hitter. He didn't throw a nine-inning no-hitter, I know, there were relievers involved, but that was kind of a stunning comment, and it was just an amazing night to be at the ballpark. All no-hitters are, and it's been a privilege to witness quite a few of them as I have. Want to thank everyone for their questions. Want to thank everyone for listening and watching. You know where to find us, YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Like us, subscribe to us. We'll be back in one week. Spring training will be on, and maybe, just maybe, a couple of free agents will actually have signed. We've got a new offer for the FT fam with the same bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L. Bet $5, get $158 instantly. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through the BetMGM Sportsbook app of at least $5, and you'll receive $158 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app, sign up and deposit at least $5 into your newly created account, Place a wager in the amount of at least $5 at standard odds price. And once you've placed a bet, you'll receive $158 in bonus bets, regardless of the outcome of your wager. Again, that's bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L. Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.